you have your Bibles, turn to John 10. We're gonna be in one through 19. And it's been a while since we've been in John 10. We took like a four week break from John, maybe five weeks and did a series on worship. And then last week we had a a great message and testimony um, from our missionary from China. And so we need to get a little context of why Jesus starts this phrase off here. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. Now I'm beginning to think that every time Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it's like Jesus going, let me put it to you this way. It's like they're just not getting what he's saying, so he goes, okay, I'm gonna try another route. So Jesus gives a great analogy here, um, but we need the context. So in John 8 and in John 9, Jesus had a lot of interaction with the Pharisees, and in one of those interactions, he literally called them sons of the devil. John 8, 44, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to, your fa- is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. It's gotta be some harsh truth to hear. And then in the chapter just before this, Jesus again deals with the Pharisees. Um, After Jesus called them sons of Satan, they have a little bit more arguing. Jesus makes a claim that he's God, and then they want to stone him, so Jesus has to slip away. And in doing so, out of the temple, Jesus walks by a man who's been blind, and Jesus says, well, I'm gonna heal that guy. So he rubs some dirt in his fingers, heals the blind man, and the Pharisees are livid. They kick the blind man out of the temple after much questioning. Jesus goes, sees this blind man, because he he apparently doesn't go far, and finds out that they've kicked him out of the temple, and so Jesus now calls the Pharisees blind. And he says, let me prove just how blind you are. So he says this in John 10, verse one. Truly, truly, I say to you, let me put it to you this way. He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Um, So before looking at this passage, I was not a first century farmer in the Middle East or a shepherd in the Middle East, so I don't really understand, nor I'm kind of doubting, we understand like exactly what Jesus is saying here. I'm just picturing sheep in a field. Like I see shepherd sheep, I picture the sheep from like the three wise men or the shepherds out there, and that's what I'm picturing. But that's not actually what's going on. So let's just align our understanding to what his listeners would have understood. So sheep were kept in a sheep fold or a sheep pen. And there could be multiple flocks in one sheepfold or sheep pen, and there was a gatekeeper that kind of guarded this. And then whoever the shepherd was, they could rightfully enter through that gate, call out to his own flock. His own flock would go, that's my man. And then they would be able to be led out to pasture. And so Jesus says, anyone not entering through the gate, They have no rightful reason to do that. They're sneaking in. Their only intent is to kill, maybe for a meal for themselves, to steal a sheep for their own, start their own flock. Who knows what it is? But he is clearly saying that Jesus has the right to enter the world, call out his sheep, and his sheep will respond to him. This is a great picture of God's election of people that will follow him. And it shouldn't go unnoticed that Jesus is calling the Pharisees robbers and thieves, but Jesus is gonna get a lot more into that. And then, so now in verse four, he'll explain a little bit more about this. He says, 
When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep following him. Follow him. This is Jesus going, taking the sheep out to pasture. For they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So when the sheep hear the shepherd, they respond to the correct voice. Apparently they don't have great eyesight. Um, I kind of pictured the sheep going like, hey, is that our shepherd? Or like, darling, is that it? And he goes, no, dear. Our shepherd had a, a, a gray beard and quite a longer staff. And they just, they just hear a voice. Um, what I thought of was uh, an, an illustration of um, if you have a kid and they have a bad dream and it's darker in their room and they call out at night, well, parents come, right? Now, do you burst in the room? Oh, I don't, because my kids would be, they would go spastic. But while I'm down the hall, I start calling out in my very comforting voice. Usually it's Weston. Weston, daddy's here. It's okay. No parent in their right mind says, they can't help you now. <laughs> like, no, Lauren hates that voice. Um, it scares the bejeebers out of them. And so Jesus says, listen, they hear my voice and they respond to them. I call and I comfort them and they follow me. And he is illustrating salvation in a very understandable way. Those called by God will hear the gospel in spirit and in truth and with saving faith believe the message that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, was risen again, and his invitation to believe is open to everyone. That's Jesus' flock. That's the people that will understand and respond to the calling. And then I think this this whole thing about they do not know the voice of strangers, um, I think after salvation, God gives us a really great gift. That gift is clarity. It's like, I can't imagine not being one with Jesus. I can't imagine listening to a voice that would say something other than the gospel, that would say something other than that beautiful truth that saved my life from, a, from a eternity in hell and gave me a beautiful relationship with God the Father. It's like, wow, why do I even want to listen to that? It just seems ridiculous. But like most of Jesus' analogies, the people don't necessarily get it. Um, and we don't know if, if it's the Pharisees that didn't get it, like if they were still saying like, okay, so we might be the flock, no, you're the robber, man. So we don't know if they were arguing a little bit or if the people didn't get it, but in John 10, 6, he says, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. So he explains it another way. Look at verse 7. Truly, truly. He's like, oh, let me put it to you this way. I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find, and find pasture. And at first reading this, I was like, okay, Jesus, so you're the shepherd and the door? I understand why they didn't get it. But I was thinking like 21st century American, not first century shepherd and sheep farmer. So again, let's go back to the shepherding tactics of the first century Middle East. Um, after the shepherd would go into the sheep pen, call out his own flock, he would then lead them out to pasture. This pasture would have an opening. It would be like fenced in 
And so the, the shepherd would stand at the opening, let the sheep in, and then stand at the opening so that the sheep didn't get in or that nothing else could get in that the shepherd didn't want them to get in. And so Jesus is, again, just really clearly saying, like he will in about four chapters, John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It is his exclusive claim to, to be the one from whom salvation comes. And then he says, all who come before me are thieves and robbers. And he's not talking about the Old Testament writers. He's not talking about Moses and Abraham and David and the prophets. He's, he's not saying that all those guys were just thieves and robbers. He is talking literally to the Pharisees that are right in front of him, saying, listen, they claim to be your spiritual leaders, but they were robbing you of the truth of knowing Jesus. They set aside the two most basic commands to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself so they could do it for their own good or to look good. And it's illustrated in John 9 when the Pharisees were livid that Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. <gasps> Sunday. It was Saturday. But Jesus didn't stop there. And we're gonna spend um, a good bit of our time here in verse 10 to further explain the thief behind the thief. John 10, 10 starts with this. He says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. So again, immediately speaking, the thief, the Pharisees. But he just called the Pharisees sons of the devil. And there's a thief behind the thief, kind of like this kingpin mobster that wants more and more and wants to rule. And he does say the thief, not all you thieves. And this is a progression of work, stealing, killing, destroying. Let's start with stealing. Thieves use stealth to steal. Stealthily implanting false teaching, adding works to salvation, claiming errant theories as truth, replacing the very beautiful truth that should give rest and peace to our souls with errant messages. In John 9, the Pharisees stole the Sabbath. They added rules, they added regulation. The Sabbath was supposed to be a rhythm of blessing for us. The Sabbath was supposed to be a testimony of God's literal, literal creation in six days, of his power and his creativity in creation, but they made it all about them. They made it all about harm. Another example, they neglected justice in every way. Again, John 9, they literally walked over the blind guy for years and years and years. Their religion allowed them to neglect those most in need. That is the work of the devil. And I'd have to say, we need to evaluate anything. If there's anything we believe that is commanded against or that allows us to neglect the helpless and the hurting, that is not of God. If there's anything I'm neglecting, because I think, oh, this, this allows me to do that. I'm better than blank. I'm above blank. That's not my job. Whatever it is, that's a sneaky lie that Satan uses. So I would just say, ask yourself, is there something that allows you to buy into falsehood, allows you to neglect the helpless, the hurting, think you're better than blank? Self-evaluate. And if there is, I bet you can trace that ideology back and it's the work of a sneaky thief. 
some way, somehow, that, that got into our minds and hearts and said, no, no, that's actually right. And thieves usually thieve while we're asleep. Ephesians 5 says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So the thief uses the cover of night and the confidence that the intended victim has no idea they're there. And so we must be alert, constantly evaluating teaching, evaluate my teaching, evaluating influences, trends. I love how Pastor Michael says good sounding mantras are really bogus once you think about them. Like love wins, live your truth, you do you. God's will is to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Like, oh, that sounds good. False. So I ask myself, when am I the least alert, the most asleep, unaware of influences in my life? And if I had my phone with me, I'd pull it out and say, it's usually when I'm on this guy. And we all like to hate on distracted drivers, right? I mean, I see someone with their like, phone like this and they're, they're driving and I, I downshift and I'm gone. I'm like Mario Andretti. I, I don't have time for that. You know, so I'm casting judgment. I judge you, distracted driver. <laughs> but am I guilty of distracted living? Do I just zone out? Am, am, am I alert when I'm scrolling, when I'm watching the news, when I'm listening to, fit, to fill in the blank? I just think the thief knows that we can turn our minds off and then be influenced. He's so good at it. He's so good at having us buy into his lies and false teaching, and it's, that's not his ultimate goal. That's just to steal. Now we get to the thief comes to steal, kill. So what's the result of us buying into lies and falsehoods and neglecting? It is literally death. It could be the actual death of believers being in a world that is dark and sometimes demonically, spiritually controlled. Just last week, we heard testimonies of Chinese believers killed or beaten until presumed dead by a false religion wanting to silence the gospel. That is the work of the thief. But I think in our lives, as those not persecuted believers in China, it's probably more the life-stealing acts of the flesh. James 3 says that the, the tongue and could also be presumed to be the rest of our deeds of the flesh. They are literally set on flame by the fires of hell. And when our deeds of the flesh bring ruination to lives and relationships, that kills, number one, joy and vitality. I ask my students this all the time. Who loves strife and dissension? Who loves drama? Who loves losing relationships and betrayal? They never raise their hand. A couple do, because they're funny. But those attacks could be failed spiritual leaders. The ripple effects of those sins can bring so much death. People say all the time, I won't believe Jesus because of this blank Christian and what he or she did. 
that brings death to the life of someone who could potentially trust in Christ. And it just kills me that so much life and vitality is lost because of things I do or say. We do not need to have a raise of hands to say I am either guilty of or I am a victim of someone's words or bodies killing life and vitality in my life or in someone else's life. And we're not doomed to that. Romans 6 says that we can present our members to to sin as instruments of unrighteousness or present our members to God as those who have been brought from death to life and our members to God as instruments of righteousness. So we're not doomed to that, but Satan knows we're easily duped. Satan knows the power the flesh has in us. But his ultimate goal is not just to steal and kill, it's to then destroy. Destroy in this sense means utter ruination of life for eternity. And number one, praise Jesus that if we belong to Christ, nothing can snatch us out of our Father's hands. Satan cannot ruin our life eternally. He doesn't have that power. He doesn't have that right. We are protected in God's hands, literally for the preservation of our very souls. But Satan's too dumb, no, not dumb. He is, well, he's dumb to keep fighting. He's too prideful and he's too spiteful to stop. He says, I hate God and everything God values so much that I'll try to ruin it as best I can. And the people I can stop from hearing Jesus's voice by golly, I will. But then Jesus says something that some of us have probably heard or recited or memorized. This, this next line has changed lives for millennia to come. Jesus says, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So in contrast to the thieves that steal and kill and destroy and want to take life and vitality and even our eternal lives from God, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So eternally speaking, this is eternal life. And it's a long time. If you were here for VBS a few weeks ago, um, we had one lesson that was um, Jesus gives eternal life. You know, yay, kids. And so um, to illustrate that, I took a roll of the thickest Charmin toilet paper I could find and uh, put a little just dot on one roll, and then I had the kids do a race through the parking lot with how far they could unroll the toilet paper, and we did like little bets of like how long it could go. A roll of toilet paper goes a long ways. It went like from the shed to the corner of the, the building. That was at least like 50 or 60 yards. And the... And the principle was, that's not even how long eternity is compared to the dot of our life. And that's how important it is to trust Jesus right here and now, because that makes the difference for your entire life. And so Jesus saying, I've come that they may have abundant, overflowing, eternal life. Heck yes, that's abundant and overflowing. But he wants that little dot of our umpteen, whatever years it will be, to be filled with life and vitality as we live out God's will. And it comes by listening to Jesus' voice. The thief's voice spews out lives. 
Ephesians calls these lives flaming arrows or flaming darts. And so Jesus' voice says, no, 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 no. There's a truth to contradict every one of those lies. Satan says, you'll never have peace. It's ruined. Nothing ever good can come of that. Philippians 4, 7, no, I have peace. Peace that surpasses comprehension. Satan says, you prayed the prayer. There's no way you're one of God's children. Romans 8, 16, the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children heirs also. Satan says, Jesus just done left y'all alone. What kind of help is he now? John 14, I will give you the helper and he will guide you into everything I say. Satan says, you have no purpose. What good can you possibly do? Ephesians 2 says, no, 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 no. You, were, you are God's worksmanship, created to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Satan says, this will be miserable all the time. You have no rest or, you have no rest or comfort. Jesus says, no, I am the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Satan says, it's everyone for themselves. You're gonna have to get your own. No one, no one here accepts you. No one loves you. Jesus says, the God of endurance and encouragement gives us a spirit of unity so that we may with one heart and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Satan says, you are weak, unable. Jesus' voice says, the power of God is in you. You are jars of clay, but the surpassing power of God belongs to God. Satan says, Jesus doesn't understand. How could he? He's no help to you. Nope. Hebrews says, he can understand and sympathize with our every weakness. Therefore, we can have confidence to go to him and find grace and help in our time of need. Satan says, no one here loves you. They don't care. Nope. Jesus' voice Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever has been born of God knows and loves God. And just lastly, of the eight or nine I could think of, Satan says, you will never be forgiven for that sin. That sin is the ugliest thing you have ever done, and it hurt dozens of people. Jesus says, nope. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Guys, that list right there, that's the life I want. I don't necessarily want health and wealth. I mean, some new chainsaws and a truck that's not consistently broken would be great, but like, I want that for me, for my wife, for my family, for you. And that's what God wants. And Satan, he just hates it. He wants to steal it from us. And it's easy to understand why Satan does it. He just hates and hates and hates. And then we think, well, why does Jesus give us that? I know you, I know me, I don't deserve it. Why would Jesus want to give us that and at the cost of the cross? Well, he goes on to say this. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Why would Jesus do that? It's because it was his joy, not his job. And he says again in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. 
I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. A hired hand cares nothing about the sheep. But Jesus, the owner, the creator, the savior, says, I love you so much, I gave my life for that. And there's a verse in 2 Corinthians that says, the love of Christ compels us, literally controls us. So my question to us is, in light of that love, how in the world do we live out this passage? How in the world do we live the way Jesus wants us to live? Because he wants us to live and believe by that list and even dozens more on that list that the slide didn't have room for. So how do we do that? I just have a couple so what's for us. So what number one? Better is one day in Jesus' flock than a thousand elsewhere. I have to say because I love you and I don't want your soul to be in some place that is rotten and in torment. If you realize today that literally better is one day in the presence of Jesus than a thousand elsewhere, just like that house in Multiplata. Believe today that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again. And God says to all who call on me, I will save you. It is just an act of faith. And for those of us that believe that, or if you do believe that, I'd say get ready for a flurry of attacks. And so recognize the attacks of Satan. So what number two? He is busy shooting flaming arrows where we realize it and ignore or don't realize it. It's in the very halls of Village Church. It could be. He's sneaky. It's in the bedrooms and the family rooms of our homes. It's in the classrooms. It's on social media, news outlets. He wants nothing more than to steal, kill, and destroy. And if we recognize them, what we can get rid of. Like, if you're, if you're shot with an arrow because a sneaky archer shoots you, you had no idea it was there, I'm like, okay, that's, that's sad. But if you're standing in front of the target going like, think then, I hope you won't get me, I got a little less compassion for you. Jesus says, better to go through life without blank than spend an eternity in in hell, or since we're believers, have our life and vitality robbed from us. And what we can't, what we can't see coming or what we just can't prepare for, I think the last so what um, to me in my life has been powerful and has been helpful, have Jesus's words at the ready. Very often the so what's of a message might be, you need to pray and read your Bibles. Um, But I would like to encourage you to arm yourself with specific truth against the arrows that you are the most vulnerable to. If you are vulnerable to one of those things that I listed, memorize that verse or memorize other verses kind of like it. And if memorization is a struggle for you, we're memorizing like transcripts of original transcripts. If you replace a so with a uh or a but with a the, so... The heart of it is what really matters. The truth of it is what really matters. Memorize the the thoughts, memorize the ideas of the things that you personally are weak in or struggle with. Again, Ephesians calls calls Satan's lies flaming arrows, and he says that it's that shield of faith that protects us against them. So 
not just knowing the verses, but absolutely believing them and claiming those as truth against those arrows, that is powerful. That when Jesus wants to hurl that, you are not forgiven. You say, no, 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 no. Jesus said I am and God cannot lie. And Jesus says, you are useless. Jesus said, no, 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 no. We remind ourselves of that truth and we do not let Satan win the battle in our minds and hearts. And then when we do that, we more and more day by day as we grow in this thing called being a disciple of Jesus, we live out that abundant life in the here and now that Jesus wants us to. The whole point of this message was to encourage you that literally better is one day with Jesus than living in any other way because any other way is meant to steal my joy, kill life and influence that we could have, and just bring destruction and ruination. And so what I wanna do now is I just wanna pray for you guys and then we're going to celebrate the cost at which that life came through communion. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, I know why you did it, but I don't know why. You say you died for us because you love us, and yet, Lord, I, we are depraved. We didn't deserve it, but it just makes your love that much more amazing and awesome. So, Lord, I praise you for the life that Jesus gives to the cost of his own. And, Lord, I would pray for this body, these people that are here listening, even people on, on, online, Lord, that, um, Lord, we would hear your voice and respond to you, number one, in salvation, and number two, in obedience, as you've told us the most beautiful way to live and think and reason and feel is aligned to you and your marvelous and beautiful truth. So, Lord, I pray that just this morning we would take, we would take one step to live out and think and believe the way that you would want us to, Lord, how beautiful is your will and that will lived out in the lives of, its, of your church, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.